This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Continuing our series entitled Practical Christianity, going through the book of James verse by verse. Tonight we find ourselves in James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We're going to start in verse number... uh, Let's start in verse number... Let's just start in verse number 8 tonight. No. Verse number 9. Again, the context we've been taking a look at, partiality uh, and... Uh, the Bible says that God is not a respecter of persons, neither should we be. Uh, we don't look at people and give them uh, more kudos than somebody else because of uh, the money that they have, or the way that they're dressed, or things that they have, because God doesn't value those things. We find ourselves in uh, James chapter 2, we're starting verse number 9 tonight, but if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. And then now James gets into a legal discussion uh, in James chapter 2, verse number 10, we're, we're going to be in 10 through 13 tonight. For he that said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak, uh, so speak, and so do, that they shall be judged of the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy. He hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Verse number 10 is really, shall keep, and keep the whole law, yet if in one point is guilty of it all. This verse is really important, and it's critical that we understand what it says and what it doesn't say. That's why I've entitled tonight's message, All Sin is the Same and Other Myths About God's Law. We're going to take a look at some uh, misunderstandings that people have about the biblical law, God's law, in the Bible, and how that relates to us, and how um, one of the common one misconceptions uh, based on verse number 10 is that all sin is the same to God. Uh, you've probably heard that before. You might have even used it in sharing the gospel with somebody, saying, hey, my sin is no different than your sin. Uh, and that can be true. But we need to understand the context in which it is true and the context in which it is not true. Uh, my voice is completely and totally shot tonight. Uh, I've been singing today. Uh, well, it's not even from preaching. It's from singing. Man, those uh, uh, songs were good today and were a huge encouragement to my heart. Uh, man, to, to, to think uh, it is well with my soul uh, and how great thou art in one uh, day. Man, both of those are good. And then how great is our God? I just let it, I just let it rip from the back. So, um, I... And, Obviously, when I get to the end of that, I realize I probably should have saved my voice because I'm going to preach, but uh, hey, uh, we'll just let it rip anyways. So um, I got six days to recover until next Sunday, right? That's the idea. I'll I'll, I'll recover tomorrow with some hot tea and honey and stuff like that. So anyways, is all sin really the same to God? Depends on what you mean by the same. Uh, Again, context is critical when we talk about this. And in the context that James is using it here in this case here, uh, is all sin the same? Yeah, uh, because if any man offend in one p- point of the law, he's guilty of all of it. So we need to understand what that means and what it doesn't mean. First of all, the myth that is propagated often is that all sin is the same to God. Uh, we might say to somebody like, hey, I told a lie the other day, and that's no different than your sin of adultery that you have, for example. Hey, uh, me, I'm not perfect. I got upset with someone the other day and said something that I shouldn't have. And that's the same as your sin maybe of unbelief. And on the surface, that might make sense. 
Uh, on the surface, according to, to what James says in here in James chapter 2, that may or may not be true, depending on what you mean by that. Now, it's important to understand the truth, as opposed to the myth, is that any sin makes us judicially guilty before God. Now, the question is not, is one sin worse than the other in God's eyes? James speaking here, judicially. Well, how do you know that? Context. And if you've got nothing over the last several months of talking through the Bible, context is key on everything. Verse number nine, but if you have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. So now James says, I'm going to start speaking to you in judicial terms. Are you innocent before God or are you guilty before God? For what? For any sin. When it comes to that, if any man offend in one point of the law, he's guilty of all of it. When we think in terms of the Ten Commandments, uh, we might say, well, I I've kept some of the Ten Commandments. Well, then you are considered guilty before God. And, and if, you've, if you've never actually watched The Way of the Master by, with uh, Ray Comfort on, uh, on YouTube, you should watch that sometime. He basically uses the Ten Commandments and he uses it to convince of people of their need for a Savior. It's absolutely fascinating to watch. And I've used it often uh, in my evangelism and sharing with people. But the idea is this, is that if you sin one single solitary time, you are guilty before God as a sinner. I think most of us, if we were honest, say, I think I've sinned probably more than once in my lifetime. I think most of us being honest would say, I probably sinned more than once today. Because again, as we talked about on Sunday morning, our, our sins aren't just the things that we commit. Our sins are the things that we think and the things that we actually omit in our life as well. And so when it comes to sin, James tells us all it takes is one sin to be guilty. And so again, in, in sharing my faith with people, sometimes I'll say things, have you ever told a lie before? Yes. Automatically, you're guilty before God. You're on the hook. You're a sinner. You face God's wrath and judgment as penalty for your sin. Well, I haven't done a lot of sin. Doesn't matter. If any man offend in one point of the law, he's guilty of all of it. Now, judicial standing before God. You're with me so far judicial standing before God, all sin is the same, judicially. When it comes to God's courtroom, guilt versus innocent, all sin is the same. Now, in God's eyes, outside of judicial standing, is all sin the same? The answer to that is no. Sin has differ differing consequences. Uh, sin has differing uh, fallout, the people that it affects. And so God even ends up placing some sins in different categories. But we need to be really, really careful that we understand that they're not hard and fast categories. Like here's the category of A sin, here's the category of B sin, here's the category of C sin, and you've got to sort your sins into different categories. Catholicism has uh, made a, a, a belief structure based on that. And your additional truth to go with this truth is that God doesn't categorize sin by mortal sin and venial sin. That's a Catholic thing. Well, they basically categorize, categorize sin into the really, really bad stuff, murder, adultery, theft. Those would be considered mortal sins. And then there's the things like getting mad and cussing at your neighbor. Those would be considered venial sins, not as big of a deal. And so they categorize sins into big deal, not a big deal. 
And the idea behind mortal sin is mortal sin has the capability, hang with me for just a second, to take you to hell when you die. But any astute Christian who's read the Bible, even part of the Bible, would realize all sin takes you to hell when you die. That's, that's exactly what James says. Your judicial standing before God, you're guilty. You're, you're in danger of God's wrath and judgment automatically by sinning one single solitary time. And so sometimes you might hear people talk about different categories of sin, either mortal or venial sin. That's not a biblical thing. That's a Catholic thing. Uh, and if you're interested in that, I highly recommend you uh, pick up a copy of the, of the Catechism of the Catholic Churches. They're basically their doctrinal statement in book form. And for me, I read it with a yellow highlighter, and I always highlight heresy. <laughs> and let me just tell you, there's a lot of it out there. But God doesn't categorize it into categories like this. It's not neatly packaged like that. And again, when it comes to sin, God doesn't play around with sin, period. And you might think to yourself, well, I guess there's some sins that are worse than others to God or some sins that make God really angry or it would cause God to, to uh, maybe lash out in, in, uh, danger, in, in anger or wrath or judgment in some way. Um, I guess so, but it wouldn't be the things that you and I would think about. For example, maybe lying on your taxes. Would that be a, a sin that God would strike you dead for? You might say, well, it might not be that big of a deal. Well, let me tell you a story about two people, Ananias and Sapphira. They sold a piece of land and they came to church and lied about how much they paid for it or how much they sold it for. What happened? Boom, immediately struck dead. And the ushers, hey, ushers, could you grab this uh, dead guy out uh, and, and take him out? Wife shows up. Hey, did you guys really sell that piece of land for that much money? Yes, boom, she falls dead. And they said, hey, the same guys who just carried your dead husband out, could you come back and get the dead wife now and carry her out? What did, she, what did they do? Lied. You say, wow, that's a big deal. Gossip. Eh, maybe not such a big deal. Ask Korah in the Old Testament if, if gossip was a big deal. Yeah, God called him and his entire family out to a field and the ground swallowed them up. So again, we need to understand, I don't say this to say that God's going to open up the, the ground and swallow you up for gossip. He, he's not above it. He's not below it. He could totally do that. But here's the, the fact of the matter is, God doesn't play around with sin, ever. And again, the idea that God is soft on sin makes a mockery of the sacrifice of Christ. If God was soft on sin, why did he kill his only begotten son? If sin's not a big deal, it is a big deal. It's a huge deal to God. Now, are there different categories of sin that the Bible talks about? There's definitely different uh, consequences associated with certain types of sin. For example, uh, Proverbs chapter 6 talks about uh, the wicked heart. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Now, this passage has sometimes been incorrectly identified as the seven deadly sins. That's not a Bible thing. That's like a, a Catholic and slash uh, fictional writing thing. And so there's not seven deadly sins. And again, Bible-believing Christians know that all sin is deadly. But here's six things the Lord hates, and seven are an abomination. That word abomination means sick to your stomach, makes you want to vomit. These are the things that God hates. What are they? A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift to run into mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that sows discord among the brethren. These are seven things that God absolutely hates. Hates it. So you could say, 
when God has a deep burning hatred and these things make him want to vomit, he's pretty harsh against them, I guess you could say. Now, again, it doesn't say necessarily anything about the consequences that come out as a result of this, but it says that these are the things that God hates. God hates a wicked heart. <laughs> One of the things that Jesus says is that God hates people that would hurt children. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verse number 6, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged around his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Those are pretty harsh words. I've said before, people who molest and hurt children should be put to death. And people are like, oh, that's so harsh. That is so unchristlike. What? Christ-like would be putting a, a cement block around their neck and kicking them out in the middle of the ocean somewhere. That's Christ-like. That's what Jesus said. He didn't say that that's what should be done to them. He's saying what's going to happen, this would actually be better for them. Because what they've got coming, it's going to be really ugly. So Jesus didn't, didn't necessarily, in this case, say we should go out and find all people who are child predators and put them to death by drowning. He's saying what's going to happen to them it would be better for them if that's all that happened. So again, those are harsh words because God doesn't take sin lightly. Next, Jesus speaks of religious hypocrites. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Matthew 23, verse number 14. Oh, I forgot to share this with you guys earlier. Effective immediately, our Sunday evening service notes are available in the Huikala app. If anybody uses that, the, the three people who liked it rejoiced. Uh, and so um, I just want to tell you that's available for you. Um, and so uh, if that's helpful to you, uh, break that out because it's got all, everything we're covering tonight. Jesus says this about the scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. First of all, he called them hypocrites. Now, it's important, again, when we define terms, what makes a hypocrite. If you're a Christian who's really trying to live for Jesus and you have a bad day, you're not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is one who purposely lives a life of duplicity. I'm going to go to church and act like a good Christian and go home and be who I really am and go to work and be who I really am. And then I'm going to come back to church and I'm going to put on my church face and say amen and praise the Lord and bring my really big Bible that I haven't cracked all week and try to act like I'm somebody. That's a hypocrite. These Pharisees wanted to be treated like religious leaders, but Jesus says, you don't have a spiritual bone in your body. You're a fake. You're a put-on. That you look really great on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You're hypocrites. Jesus hates hypocrisy. And here's what he says to these hypocrites. Hey, you make a pretense with a long prayer. You steal money from women. You've got a greater condemnation coming for you. There's going to be greater damnation, greater punishment for you. And he's speaking in eternal terms. And I believe for every shyster huckster on TV that asks widows to send in their social security checks to receive a blessing, I believe that Jesus would say to them, Woe, you hypocrites. You make long prayers. You steal people's money, but coming for you is a greater damnation. 100%. For every false teacher and liar who stands up and says if you give more money to this church you will be more blessed guaranteed and you haven't been blessed yet because you haven't given enough 
And I know you've got a rent check in your, in your uh, front of your uh, Bible. You need to pull out your rent check and cross off your landlord's name and put the name of this church on there and pass it in if you really want to be blessed and want to live by faith. You say, nobody would really say that. I've heard it with my own ears. It's shameful. And I think Jesus would say, you've got a greater damnation coming. So again, it takes a lot to make Jesus look bad. Religious hypocrites make, make Jesus look bad, and he's not pleased by that. Because Jesus is all about his glory. He's all about the glory of the Father. And you start messing with that, you're messing with Jesus. And he says, for those comes a greater damnation. Next category we see where the Bible makes a category for sin. Sexual sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 18 says, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without his body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. The word fornication means any type of sexual sin, whether it's sex outside of marriage, whether it's pornography, any type of sexual activity that takes place outside of marriage is determined as fornication. And Paul says to the church at Corinth, run from it. Run from it. Because when you sin against somebody else, that takes place outside of your body. But he says there's one type of sin that when you commit, you're sinning against your own body. What's that? Sexual sin. And so, again, we need to be really careful when we talk to people and we say things like, well, your sin of homosexuality is no different than, than, than my sin of uh, getting upset in traffic and saying things I shouldn't say. Be careful with that. That's not what the Bible says. And if you want to go one step further, the Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that homosexuality is an end result of a people who have forgotten God. And so again, it's kind of, a, it's, kind of its own judgment itself against mankind who has forgotten God. Romans chapter 1, you should read it for yourself if you haven't. But you know, we also need to be careful and we don't say, need to say that, you know, well, homosexuality is the worst type of sin because it's not what the Bible says either. But for those that are having sex outside of wedlock, that same verse applies, fornication. For the man or woman that looks at pornography, that same verse applies, fornication. You've sinned against your own body. And so that puts itself in its own category of destructiveness. Next sin that the Bible speaks of explicitly. And there's probably a list of about a dozen more that I didn't have time to include tonight. But defiling the Lord's Supper. There's two institutions that God created. He created baptism and the Lord's Supper. Both of these were meant to remind us what Jesus Christ has done for us. Two ordinances, rather. The institution that God created was uh, the family, government, and the church. Those are the institutions. The ordinances that he created, the things that he ordained, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism pictures the death, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we baptize by immersion after salvation, because it points to what Jesus Christ has done for us. Again, that's why a biblical model for baptism is not sprinkling, because sprinkling doesn't identify anything at all. Just getting somebody's head wet or pressing something on their forehead. When you go into the water, it's a picture of the death. When you go under the water, it's a picture of the burial. When you come back up, it's a picture of the resurrection. And everybody that sees that can say, I see what just happened here. 
that helps us to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. He ordained that. Second thing that he ordained is the Lord's Supper. At the last Passover meal, they got together and Jesus broke bread. And he says, this bread is given to you as a reminder of my body. And every time you eat this bread, I want you to do it in remembrance of me. Here's a cup. This cup is a picture of my blood that was shed for you. Every time you drink this cup, I want you to do it as a way to remember me. We had gone on vacation to Tennessee a few weeks ago. We went to, a, uh, again, a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching Baptist church where the preacher preached the gospel on a Sunday morning. As we walk into the auditorium, uh, they're handing out little cards that go along with the message for the day. Uh, and then they, they handed out um, the, the juice and wafer thing in little cups. And as we walked in, we weren't going to take it. And they said, oh, here, you need these. And I said, that's okay. I don't think we do. And he goes, no, you really do. You should take them. And I said, that's okay, we're good. And we went on in. And so then the pastor goes on and, and preaches a message about the gospel. It's a good message. And if you wanted to know how to be saved, you could have gotten it from that particular message. And then he said, on your way in tonight, you should, or way in this morning, you should have gotten a, a, the, the elements of the Lord's Supper. And this is a way to remember what Jesus has done for us. Go ahead and crack the top on that. We're going to thank the Lord for the bread. And he prayed and thanked the Lord for the bread. And everybody ate it. And said, we're going to thank the Lord for the juice. And everybody uh, popped the top on their juice and drank it. And then, at the end of the message, he says, he says, uh, all right, we're going to have our musicians come up and play. If you want to know more about how to be a Christian today, you want to know for sure that you're saved today, I want you guys to, to come on up uh, to the front. We've got three guys down here that would love to open the Bible and talk to you about what it means to be a Christian. And I wanted to throw up. You say, what's the problem, Pastor? What the Bible has to say about the Lord's Supper. Here's what Paul says to the, the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. He says, some of you have eaten and drank the Lord's Supper unworthily. And because of this, some of you are sick and some of you have died because you weren't worthy to take of the Lord's Supper because you weren't a Christian or because you were living in rebellion to God. And so he says, let a man examine himself to see if he be worthy to take the Lord's Supper. Because some people have gotten sick and some people have died because they made a mockery of the Lord's Supper. And I thought to myself, never was there any instructions in that church service about, hey, don't take this if you're not a Christian. Hey, don't take this if you're not living right with God. Hey, don't take this because you could be eating and drinking damnation to your soul. Never any warning whatsoever. And I just sit there just like with a lump of concrete in my gut thinking like, oh my goodness. They gave the Lord's Supper to everybody who came and then afterwards they told people if they wanted to be saved that they could come to the front. And I thought to myself, bad, 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 bad. And that along with the, several other reasons was one of the reasons why we don't do what's referred to as open communion at Huicala. Huicala uh, practices closed communion for our church members. Three times a year we gather together at a non-church time uh, to take the Lord's Supper. And we do that as closed communion because, here's the thing, if me as the pastor of this church gives the Lord's Supper to someone who's not worthy, according to the Bible, not according to the pastor, but according to the Bible, they're, they're not worthy they're eating and drinking damnation to themselves, and I basically gave it to them. I'm giving them something that throughout church history has killed people, killed people or gotten them very, very sick to the point of death. 
And whose fault is that? Mine. I take it very seriously. For the, so for that reason, Joe's visiting on vacation from Montana. Joe, you can take the Lord's Supper with your church family. You won't take it here with us. Simple as that. That's a pastoral call. Uh, and if you have questions on that, I'd be happy to explain to you what that means. Other churches perform what's called close communion. Basically, those people who, who believe similarly to our church and comes from a church of like practice and are in a good relationship with our church family can take the Lord's Supper. Uh, that would be referred to as close communion. We do closed for church members only. And what took place in Tennessee is open communion. Anybody who wants to take it can take it and run with it. But it's a big deal to God. And he says, hey, there's different judgment coming for those who sin like this. And so, again, when we say all sin is the same, we need to quantify what that means. Our judicial standing before God, all sin exactly the same. All of us stand guilty before a holy God. Our sin being the same in consequences or God's judgment, not necessarily the case. And I think any of us would agree that going five miles an hour over the speed limit and being unfaithful to your spouse, those are kind of in two different categories of destructive nature of sin. But we also need to understand that God doesn't play around with sin. Sin's a really big deal to him. The next myth that often comes up when it comes to the grace of God and God's law is that God loves me just the way I am so I don't need to change. That's what grace is for. This is sometimes referred to as antinomianism. Antinomianism literally means, the word namas means law. Antinomian basically means no law or against the law. Antinomianism carries the ideal with it that I'm a sinner, God knows I'm a sinner, that's why he gives me his grace. Because I don't have to follow the law anymore. And again, the errant idea behind this is, errant meaning incorrect, is that Jesus died and set us free from the law. We don't have to follow rules anymore because we are under God's grace. Be really careful with how you say things because Jesus didn't say he came to do away with the law. He came to do what to the law? Anybody want to help me with that? Fulfill the law. He came to fulfill the law, not abolish the law. God's moral law doesn't change. God still expects holiness and righteousness from his people. Always. God's moral law doesn't change. God's customary law to the Jews, it's gone. It's no longer necessary. We can eat bacon. Praise God for that. God's customary law for Jews no longer exists. God's moral law never changed. It's always been wrong to kill and it always will be. It's always wrong to steal and it always will be. God's moral law doesn't change. So the idea that Jesus abolished the law and we now don't have to live by rules and guidelines is not a biblical idea. The truth is, yes, God loves us just the way we are, but God rejects our sinfulness and calls us to repentance. There's a new movement that's become popular in, I use the term so-called Christianity because some of these things people are saying are anti-Christ and, and anti-biblical. And so I don't know that these people are actually Christians and it's not my place to, to make that judgment. But some of these new, so-called new movements in, in quote Christianity, I'll say that, there's one called hyper grace. And it's the idea of this. That God's grace is enough to cover your sin. You don't need to do anything at all. You don't even need to repent of your sin. You don't need to change from your sin. You don't even need to ask for forgiveness of sin because you are already forgiven. 
that you, after you were saved, haven't done anything wrong because God still sees you as righteous. And again, that just doesn't hold water when it comes to the Bible. When you were justified by faith, that word justified means declared righteous by God. When you were justified by faith, that's your judicial standing before God. Your practical standing before God is that you still sin and you still need to repent of your sin. If no one needed to repent from their sin, why did the majority of the New Testament get written? It was written to the church at Corinth because they needed to repent of sexual sin and false teaching. It was written to the churches at Galatia because they had fallen into a works-based salvation and legalism all over again. Well, of course we have to repent. That's why Jesus says that wherever we go, we should be preaching repentance to people. So again, things like hyper-grace, things like antinomianism or anti-biblical ideas. And an additional truth that goes with this, you're welcome to come as you are, but you can't stay as you are. Sometimes people say, well, I just want to go to a church where it's kind of come as you are. Hey, look around. There's no dress code at this church. We have people sometimes wear jackets and ties on a Sunday morning. We have other people who wear board shorts and t-shirts and slippers. And you know what? Frankly, at the end of the day, I don't care. I'll just say that. But the idea that you can come however you are in your sinful condition and continue to stay in sin, that's an unbiblical idea. And when we say come as you are, we're not talking about a dress code or how you're dressed. We're talking about coming with your sin and baggage. Look, every single sinner under the sun is welcome at who we call a Baptist church. Every single one. Join our merry band of sinners who have been redeemed by the grace of God. Please come and join us this Sunday at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. That's what we are, sinners. And if you want to join our happy throng, please come. But understand, you will be called every single week of the world until the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to change, to repent, and to grow in sanctification and Christ-likeness. Fact. So, antinomianism, hypergrace, no place in the life of a biblical Christian. Is it enticing, the idea that all my sins forgiven, I can just live how I want to? Yeah, it's enticing to the flesh. But you know what? My spirit is repulsed by sin. Wait, what? Join a church that tells me I can sin more? What is that? That's the opposite of being a Christian. Any Bible-believing Christian would be repulsed with the idea that God just kind of pats us on the head and goes, oh, I'll try to do better next week, buddy. It's okay. And what type of foolish Christian would want to join a church where sin is winked at or even not even discussed and we can just sin as much as we want and not feel bad about it? Carnal Christians, that's very appealing. The unsaved man, incredibly appealing. But for those that know and love the Bible and know and love Jesus, you'll find that that's not appetizing in the least. I want someone to speak truth to my heart so that I can change. I want the Holy Spirit to grab me by the throat when I disobey. 
I need that in my life. I want that in my life. I desire that in my life. So the idea of there just not be any rules and live how you want to, that's not appealing in the least. On the opposite end of legalism is, or I'm sorry, the opposite end of antinomianism is legalism. This myth means keeping God's law perfectly is the only way to earn God's approval. If you don't keep the rules, you forfeit God's love. And sometimes, again, people grab verses and use them out of context. God is angry with the wicked every day. And so when you sin against God, God doesn't love you anymore. He's actually really, really mad at you. And you better get yourself in line where God will never love you. You'll never receive God's blessings. You'll never be able to earn God's affection because you haven't kept the rules. Oh, what are the rules? Oh, I'm glad you asked. We have an addendum to our church constitution that's 365 pages long that tells you all the additional rules that we've added to this, what you find in the Bible. You have to understand, and again, this is sometimes difficult to comprehend and to grasp. Does God bless those people that are faithful? Yeah, absolutely. Does God chastise the wicked? Or, or does God curse the wicked? Definitely. Does, does God chastise his rebellious children? Most definitely. But the idea that God no longer loves you because you didn't keep his rules is an unbiblical idea. And oftentimes, legalism can be used to develop a cult-like environment where everybody has to follow the same rules. Legalism is how cults get started. All ladies should always wear dresses. Always. You want to play on a church softball team, you should wear a skirt down to your ankles. What? Yeah. And if you don't, you're not allowed to play on the church, church softball team because everybody knows that God hates sweatpants on women. Always. Now, guys can wear shorts up to the middle of their thighs and two sizes too small, but women, huh, no, not for you. Skirts down to the ankles. Women should never cut their hair. Women shouldn't wear makeup. All these other rules that you have to follow because if you don't follow these rules, God doesn't love you anymore. It's legalism. That's how cults get started. That couldn't be further from the truth. You don't need a list of rules to earn God's love. You couldn't earn God's love if you wanted to. And you think by just buying clothes that come down to your ankles, that's enough to appease God? That God's like, whew, I'm glad you put that extra three inches on that skirt because I was this close to never loving you again. What? But then again, in cases like that, losing God's love becomes a fear mechanism that's used for control, right? If you love Jesus, you would want to come to a men's prayer breakfast on a Saturday morning, wouldn't you? If you love Jesus. I'd just like for all the men to stand tonight that haven't yet signed up for the men's prayer breakfast so we can see who doesn't really love Jesus here tonight. Ooh, that would be awkward, wouldn't it? <laughs> Some of you are pulling out your phone really slowly. <laughs> Did you know that there are churches that create a culture of fear so that people follow the rules? Is that really the spirit of the Bible? That God gives you rules to shame you, to humiliate you, to cause you to be fearful? I don't think so. 
I think what the Bible says is true, that perfect love casts out all fear. I don't have to be afraid of what my Heavenly Father will do to me because I know that He loves me. I don't have to be fearful of how my brothers and sisters are going to treat me when I fall. Notice I didn't say if I fall, I said when I fall because I know that they love me and they've got my back. And so this idea of legalism creates a system of fear and control that's incredibly unhealthy and it's anti-biblical. The truth is we can't earn God's approval by our works, but we can live lives of obedience out of gratitude for His grace. Do I want to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord? No doubt about it. Do I want my wife and my daughters to dress in a way that doesn't draw attraction to their bodies? No doubt about it. Do I want my boys to handle themselves in such a way that they don't get involved in sexual sin? Definitely. But it's not out of control or rules or following guidelines. It's about following Jesus. It's about giving God glory. It's about honoring God with what we've been given. It's not about creating a list of rules that have to be followed. You see, the Jews had actually created a system where the things that they obeyed, in their mind, they got points for those. And the things that they disobeyed in, they got points detracted for those. And then in the end, it ended up being, do they have a surplus or a deficit when it comes to their standing before God? And you say, wow, what a crazy system. It's, most people in America think the same thing's going to happen when they die. They're good and they're bad. So we put on a scale and see which one outweighs the other. Hopefully they've done enough to get to heaven. Hopefully they're over the mark. And again, that's just not how God's law works. Another myth that I hear sometimes perpetrated, God dismissed the charges and wiped out all of my sin. Man, I'm thankful that all the wrong that was ever held against me, God just wiped it out like it never happened. Is that true? Uh, it's part of the story. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever looked up something on the Snopes website. It's like, true, green check mark, false, red X, and then there's sometimes missing context and partially true. This would be one of those like partially true. Here's the fact of the matter. God didn't dismiss the charges against you. That would make him unjust. I've used this illustration many times. Imagine going to court and the judge, every single case he reads off, he says, dismissed, dismissed, dismissed. Oh, wait, judge, we got really good evidence on that. Dismissed. Would you be like, what a great judge. I love this guy. No, you'd probably be like, well, I hope I get this guy when I get caught doing something. But this guy's a joke. We hear people who have done atrocious crimes against children, and they get what? 12 months probation? And we're like, where's the justice? That isn't just. Imagine someone who is a lifelong criminal who has a rap sheet 10 miles long and the judge just says we're just going to pretend like that none of this ever happened you'd be a good boy all right you'd say that's not justice you're absolutely right and guess what you're the career criminal with a 12 mile rap sheet and god cannot say it's okay buddy do better next time and pat you on the head that's not justice here's the truth though your sin debt was not dismissed, but it was paid in full 
by a third party. Hey, look, if God could just make all this stuff go away, why send his son? If God just dismisses charges like they never happened and just turns a blind eye, then Jesus' sacrifice wasn't really worth a whole lot. But because God is just, he says somebody has to pay. So imagine going before a judge and the judge says you're sentenced to 30 years to life in prison without appeal, without the possibility of parole. And then he says, is anybody in the courtroom like to take this man's place? Boy, I ain't taking that, that's for sure. But then somebody says, I got that, I'll take it. Done. You're free to go, sir. Somebody has paid your penalty. That's what took place. Again, we're talking in judicial terms in God's law. God doesn't just let people off the hook. Somebody's got to pay for this. And who was it? It was his son, Jesus. That when Jesus hung upon the cross, the greatest pain that he felt that day was not the physical pain. Although that was incredible. Did you know that the word excruciating literally means from the cross? The, the word that we use to describe the worst pain one could be in actually came from crucifixion. That's where the word came from. But here's the thing. That's no great feat in of itself. You know why? There were two other guys that died by the crucifixion that day as well, and we don't hail them as heroes for that sake. Thousands of Christians would be crucified under Roman rule in the years to come. That's not a huge deal, crucifixion itself. So that wasn't the bulk of what took place to Jesus that day. It was the fact that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. My sin was placed upon Jesus Christ, and he was punished for it. A spiritual wrath of God was unleashed. You want to use the term hell on earth? I think that would probably be the only time in the history of mankind that that type of phrase would be appropriate because the wrath of God was unleashed upon his only son to the point that God says, I can't handle this any longer. And he turned his back on his son who bore my sin and yours. So to say that God just pulled up the rug and swept it underneath is to make a mockery of the actual sacrifice that took place for my sin and yours. So our sin didn't get dismissed. It got paid in full. Additional truth, bonus truth for you, if you will. God's blanket forgiveness would actually betray his justice. Sometimes people say, well, if God could just pay for everybody's sins, why didn't he just pay for the whole world's sins? Because that wouldn't be justice. There are men in this church that I have almost had to arm wrestle to buy lunch for. They refuse to owe anybody anything. I've had people get up from the table and tell me that they're going to the bathroom, tell a lie to go pay a server before I could pull out my car to pay for lunch. So the idea that everybody on planet Earth is just sitting back waiting for a Savior to deliver them from their sinful condition, it just isn't real. God can't force anyone to repent and believe. He can't. So, he makes the offer, whosoever will may come. Your debt has already been paid in full, but if you don't want it applied to your account, you don't have to, you don't have to do it. Because if God just automatically forgave the entire world and let everybody off the hook based on, what, based on his ability to forgive, not based on faith and repentance, then that actually betrays God's justice. He's not just at all. He just forgave everybody. So when it comes to the judicial terms 
of my sin and yours, our sin debt was wiped away because it was paid in full. Does that make sense? 100% gone. Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Next myth. I hear this oftentimes with newer Christians or Christians who haven't been discipled well. I'm going to obey the parts of the Bible that I can because God knows I'm just a sinner. Hey, I'm just going to do my best. And God knows I'm just doing my best. God knows I got a filthy mouth. God knows I got a wandering eye. God knows I'm a sloth and a sluggard. God just knows. Yeah, he knows you're a sinner, but he also knows that if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. He also knows what Romans chapter 6 says, yield not yourself as members unto unrighteousness, but rather to righteousness, because, here's what he says, sin hath no more dominion over you. Here's the fact of the matter. This might hurt your feelings, but I'm sorry. The only reason that you sin is because you want to sin. Because your carnal, wicked, fleshly heart wants to do what it wants to do. Well, Pastor, I don't believe that. I just, I struggle with sin. I just can't seem to overcome it. Read Romans chapter 6. You've been forgiven and set free from your sin. You once were a slave to your sin. You're no longer a slave to your sin. You're a slave to the righteousness in Jesus Christ. Because sin hath no more dominion over you. Sin holds no power over you unless you choose to give it power. So if you've got a sin problem, it's because you chose it. Now again, does that mean we're going to live perfect? No, because we are all still carnal sinners. But please never make excuses for your own sin. Well, I just got a rough mouth. I've kind of always been like this. Then change. Well, I've always struggled with this sin. This is my besetting sin. Then confess it, repent from it, and move on. So again, the idea that God will ever just say, it's okay, buddy, I know, you've always struggled with that, is not a biblical idea. The biblical idea is that when you sin against God, God will chastise you, Hebrews chapter 12, to bring you back into line in an appropriate, sanctified, holy, righteous living. That's what he does. And, and again, if God doesn't chastise you when you sin, it's probably because you're not saved. Amen. That was a good preacher. All right. What's the truth of that? Here's the truth. Partial obedience is disobedience. Simple as that. We told our kids, hey, clean your room and take out the garbage when you're done. And they're sitting on the couch playing video games, watching a show on TV. Hey, you forgot to take out the garbage. Yeah, I didn't really feel like that. I just like, cleaning my room was just like the best I could do today. Oh, good for you. I'm going to pray that you'll have a better day tomorrow. Is that what we as parents would say? They'd be like, uh-uh, it don't work that way. Get off your tail and do what I asked you to do. Partial obedience is disobedience. Let me help you with another thought. Delayed obedience is disobedience. I know God wants to work on this in my life, but I'm just going to follow that away for next month. I got too much on my plate right now. <laughs> Disobedience is what that is. 
And again, read Hebrews chapter 12 to see how God deals with dis disobedience in his children. It's not pleasant. You and I don't get the luxury of choosing what part of God's word we're going to obey and disobey. Yeah, I like this verse over here about that. I don't really care for that verse over there. It's not so great. We got to obey all of it. And sometimes we get the idea that if I'm doing really well in one area, it excuses my lack of obedience in other areas. Well, I know I don't tithe or give to missions or anything like that, but I'm at church every Sunday or every time the doors are open. Okay. It's not an either or with God. It's a both and. Well, I'm not really good at sharing my faith, and so I'm kind of nervous and talking around people, so I don't share my faith, but uh, I give so that we can buy tracts and other people can talk about it. Not an not a either or, it's a both and. You give so that we can continue the mission of the church while fulfilling the mission of the church. So again, the idea that we can selectively pick and choose what we like in the Bible and we're just going to focus on that doesn't work really well. That's kind of a pet peeve of mine too, even when it comes to pastors. You have pastors who want to rail against homosexuality, rail against the transgender agenda, rail against public school systems and how they're going to hell in a handbasket. And they do it with an angry spirit, full of pride, and then they're usually about 150 pounds overweight when they do it. Just saying, it's not a good look. We don't get to selectively choose what we're going to be against and not against. We're against sin because God's against sin. We are for sinners because God is for sinners. That's just how it works. And if you want to choose parts of the Bible that you don't want to obey, you're just a disobedient Christian. Final myth of the night. Well, I'm just a sinner. What do you expect? Sinner's going to sin. Man, I'm just a sinner, Pastor. Just a sinner saved by grace. I can't, I can't change. Can a leopard change its spots? The answer to that's no. Just am what I am. No, you're not. This kind of falls in line with, well, the Lord knows I'm just doing my best. You were never asked in the Bible to do your best. Show me a chapter and verse in the Bible where you are commanded to just do what you can. You won't find it. Well, what are you saying I should do, Pastor? I don't know. I didn't say it, but I think it's a pretty good phrase. If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I didn't say it, but I think it's a pretty good idea to live by. Oh, yeah. I got coworkers that don't believe in Jesus. That's my cross to bear. That's not what that verse means. Well, I've just always been poor. That's my cross to bear. That's not what that verse means. A cross is used for one purpose. That's not jewelry. You know what it is? Death. If any man come after me, let him deny himself. I'm stopped. I'm tired of living for Anthony. I'm not going to do that anymore. And I'm going to take up my cross so that everywhere I go, I can die every single day to myself. And then I'm going to follow Jesus wherever he leads. That's what obedience looks like. That's what discipleship looks like. That's how you know that you're a real follower of Jesus if you're willing to do what he says. Or you're willing to do the things that are convenient or the things that feel good. Following Jesus as much as you want to 
Yeah, anybody can do that. Following Jesus when you don't want to, yeah, that's where the difficult stuff comes in. The fact of the matter is, is if one is truly saved, they're redeemed child of God, and God expects righteousness, holiness, and repentance for sin. Well, I'm just a sinner. What do you expect? If you're a child of God, you expect to be living like a child of God. If you call yourself a Christian, you're supposed to be the image of Jesus Christ. If you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you are an ambassador for Christ. If you've been saved, you're a new creature in Christ. All old things are passed away and everything, that means everything has become new. So can you, you find here that James is really, really clear when it comes to God's law. Hey, if you're, if you're guilty before God, you're guilty. But here's what he says in verse number 12, if you still got your Bibles open, James chapter 2, verse number 12. Verse number 11, he that said don't commit adultery also said don't kill. If you don't commit adultery and if you kill, you're a transgressor of the law. In verse 12 he says, so speak and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. <laughs> verse 12, you know what that says? Live your life like you're actually being judged by the things you say you believe. The law of liberty is the Bible, the gospel. If you say you believe it, live like it. Um, just doing my best. You're never commanded to do your best. You're always commanded to obey. Well, I don't feel like I can. You can't, but the Holy Spirit in you can. And again, for anybody that struggles with besetting sin, I highly encourage you. Romans chapter 6, memorize it. What verse? The whole chapter. Oh, can we start with something small? Yeah, Romans 6, 1. See me next week. Really, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the answer? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? What are you thinking? You got saved from sin to go back to sin? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. No, you got saved from sin because you are liberated from sin. So, is all sin the same? Judicially, yes. Consequentially, no. Do Christians just get to do whatever they want? Absolutely not. Do Christians have to follow a bunch of rules, otherwise God doesn't love them? Absolutely not. There's a middle of the road. In case you didn't get it, on one side of the road is a ditch called antinomianism, which says there's no law, do what you want. On the other side of the road is another ditch called legalism. Follow an explicit set of rules, otherwise God doesn't love you anymore and you're unworthy of God's love and forgiveness. And then there's this middle of the road called, anybody want to guess? Grace. Grace. Middle of the road, grace. That's where we want to ride. I want to ride in God's grace. Will I make a mistake this week? No doubt about it. Will I sin against God? No doubt about it. When I do, I need to repent it, of it, confess it before God, and move on as it's under the grace of God. But I'm never going to automatically presume on the grace of God. I'm not going to sin just hoping that God's grace will cover it up. Christians don't live like that. Uh-uh. We live to please our Father 
not because he's going to withhold something from us or because he's going to be mean to us. We live for him because we love him, because he loved us first. You see, I'm not trying to live my life right because I'm trying to maximize the stuff that I can get from God. I want to make sure I'm living right so that when it comes time to answer prayers, God always hears mine. No, I don't live like that. I want to live right so that God loves me and doesn't get mad at me. No. I want to live right, otherwise God's going to like whack me over the head with a stick. Nope. Not scared of that at all. I live right because I want to glorify my Father. I want to stand before Him in heaven one day and He says, welcome home, son. I'm really proud of you. Come on in. We've been waiting for you. That's what I want for myself. That's what I want for you. But we give all that up when we decide that we want to continue to chase after the carnal things of this world. It's not worth it, I promise you that. Most important thing, if you're here tonight and you realize you're not saved, man, there's not enough rules in the world you can follow to get saved. You just need to confess your sin before God, forsake it, and move on. If you've been living with a wrong mindset when it comes to God's law, you should fix it. And tonight's a great opportunity to do that. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.